Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello, everyone. This is the point where Barry Manilow's Looks Like We Made It would start playing, but the the copyright costs are extortionate. So uh, instead, let's just appreciate that we've all made it to the end of the 2023 Rugby World Cup in one piece. Well, just about. I'm Ben Coles, joined as ever, and for the last time in 2023, unless we have to break the glass and do another emergency podcast, I'm joined by Charlie Morgan. How's it, Charlie? Hi, Cola. And by Charles Richardson. Salut, Charles. Hi, Ben. Gents, don't be sad it's over. Smile because it happened. Charlie, how was Paris? You were there. Tell us about it. I was. It was it, The weather was gloomy, but... The kind of I was I was absorbed by the final, um, so yeah, the kind of finished finished on a on a fittingly tense note, didn't it? And yeah, the kind of uh, the Sunday and the Monday I was there for a lot of the Monday too was obviously certainly a, a little bit gloomier. Well, given given the weather, one, but also the feeling that that everything was all the energy was sort of dipping after the tournament. Um, but yeah, great overall. Controversially, can I can I say that I'm happy it's over? No, I think that's fine. <laughs> I think that's the general. I'm happy it's over. Racism storm. Referees getting death threats. No, no more. Get me back. Get me. Get me back to the stoop. <laughs> the stoop is the stoop is ready for you whenever you want to return yeah. to the stoop. It, it has felt. I was I was doing like a recap awards piece uh, on Sunday and Monday, and I completely forgot that we had a Ryder Cup. In the middle of all this, like, what yeah. scene? Like, do you remember that? That was in the yeah. pool stages. Like, it, it has been an extraordinarily, extraordinarily long tournament. Um, Charlie, in terms of South Africa, we're going we're to do a deep dive into it, but just to sort of tee us up, can you give us an idea what it was like, sort of post match, sort of being in the press conference and around, seeing the scenes afterwards, and the players kind of soaking in what they'd achieved? Well, I think it, I think it took them a while, um, and it certainly took them a while to get through the mix zone. That sort of started at one a.m. Um, they changed into their champions t-shirts, and there was, I think, just the dip of the dip of energy after the euphoria. You saw the celebrations, and there was just these so many of them in tears. Just such a relief, a release of emotion, and it was funny, wasn't it? That final because it was a classic game. It was a classic kind of 
early-ish sending off game where um, the side who have that advantage tighten up a bit. I thought South Africa were really didn't get the points for what they for how controlled and muscular they were at the start and how how rattled really that they had had New Zealand. New Zealand were phenomenal. Um, but yeah, jubilation certainly, but sort of the, this feeling, I think, like we've just, just spoken about, that it was such a long, draining tournament that seemed to go through different, well, did go through different seasons. Um, adaptability, I've written somewhere that um, adaptability in World Cups is never more true than, than in this one. Um, and just, yeah, elation to get over the line, but I think exhaustion too. It's been a whole World Cup of teams um, just not quite leading by as much as they probably should be. Think about France against South Africa. Think about England against South Africa when they could have potentially killed it off. And then, yeah, what was it? 12-6 at halftime to South Africa when it felt as though they'd completely dominated that first half. Um, Charlie, did Trevor Niakani dance into the mix zone is a question I have to ask because he's, he's a great mover and I'd love that if he did. Do you know what? He didn't. He didn't. But he was so gracious to everybody around him. He didn't it didn't dance in. But there's this you go the players go through the sort of TV area and they might do a, do a kind of vision interview. And then they, they arrive at this kind of throng of writers and everybody, um, everybody gathers around them um, over the you're, you're kind of separated by a barrier. And I was speaking to Felix Jones and I just saw him sort of over my left shoulder and he was just going along just sort of really graciously and humbly sort of thanking every thanking every journalist that was congratulating him and it was really it was really really touching I actually saw his his dancing god knows some point on Sunday morning very early on Sunday morning um when I sort of checked Twitter and that was it was great he is a serious mover yeah yeah he's got, he's got moves he's got moves good on you as well um getting in there with Felix Jones before he, you start seeing a lot more of him at Peniel Park and, and moving forward before he joins the England setup as well. Just a quick word on him. Yeah, well, uh, full disclosure to take you behind the curtain as we've been trying to do this this uh, this World Cup. Somebody would come round and say, um, "Can you can you have you got any requests for the mix zone?" And there were a few players ticked off, and I was with a, um, a couple of the Irish guys, and we said, oh, uh, "Felix Jones would tick a lot of boxes for for all of us." And he was great, actually. He was. Um, I asked him about. I was doing a piece on on Ninaba and, and Erasmus and how they dovetail together. And he's he's seen that at close quarters for seven years since they were all at Munster together. And he was really interesting on that. And then really interesting on um, on England. He was obviously complimentary as, as you'd expect him to be. He, he said, "Look, England nearly had us in the semi final." He said that um, the players had shown a foundation of work and maybe tellingly because I think this is a sort of change that he's overseen with the Springboks um he said look it feels like England have got this foundation that they want to kick on from and then just lastly he I don't think it's made print anywhere or or the website anywhere but somebody asked him Will Kelleher the Times I think asked him what's bringing him back he's a I think he's 36 I might have got that wrong but he's mm. now won two World Cups and what does he want to do how is he is he has he got the energy and the drive to jump into another World Cup cycle with England? It's a seriously intense kind of gig. And he said, he said, he's a very, he's super understated. It's it's pretty, um, the the Irish guys who who know him a bit better were sort of saying how it's difficult to sort of, to get him to open up because he's he's just that understated sort of character. But he said, he said, look, it's it becomes a bit of addiction, an addiction, this and that. 
that says to me two things. It says it's very good good news for England, but also that it'll dovetail very well with Steve Borthwick and that and that coaching team that you already know is already very close to Ired Walters from their time together at Munster. So I think it's it should be exciting really for England supporters that he's coming on board. Charles, where did you watch the game? Where where did you uh, take it in? You were you were here. You were not in Paris. So I wondered what was your what was your setup. I I was just at home. Um, I had been to a lovely wedding the day before, and I was just at home. And um, yeah, I was I was reveling in it. Really, um, was it the greatest final ever? It was certainly up there in terms of drama and intrigue. Then, yeah, I, I certainly think it was the greatest final ever. Um, some of the rugby was also outstanding, but it's just I don't know. I can't quite I can't quite reconcile the fact that there was a red card and a, and, a, and, a, and a yellow card that maybe could have been a red card. That, that sort of tainted it really, and it will always be tainted by that. So I just, I just, I'm unsure. The jury's still out for me on that one, but it was still, regardless, it was still a tremendous game and, and a tremendous victory for the Springboks. And I really did think New Zealand were going to nick it, even with 14 at half time. I still felt that New Zealand, if if one team could come back and 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 and. and from a six-point gap with 14 men against the odds in a World Cup final, it was New Zealand, and, and they almost did. They almost did, but not. They didn't get quite there. Are you disagreeing with my referee reaction piece, which I had to write in the moment about whether the yellow card was the right call? Because I, I felt felt quite bullish about that. Uh, so yeah, so so my my thought would be that um, I think that that Wayne Barnes got them right on the night. However, it comes back to the um, Tom Curry, uh, Malia and Carreras uh, comparisons that we made from the opening weekend, whereby as a neutral, as a neutral, well, as a casual fan, or even as a sort of more invested fan, is, is rugby, the laws of rugby in a healthy enough spot whereby one of those tackles is a, is a game ending and game changing red card and the other is a, is a yellow because really the difference in the two actions is so minimal um, and and the outcomes really both players should have left for an HIA let's be honest because neither did that's a separate point entirely but both players should have left for an HIA so there was significant impact to the head both players both players made clear head contact and I'm just not sure that rugby is in a sort of a reasonable and rational and logical space with its laws and interpretations around headshots if one of those is red and the other one is yellow, especially where it's basically deciding the game in a World Cup final. I, th- I thought, so two things, I thought that Alan Tyre's piece on it as a sort of, I think it's really valuable sometimes for rugby to get a get an outsider's outsider's perspective. That sounds really superior, doesn't it? But somebody that isn't maybe necessarily as embedded in the game as other people who are who are thinking about those things. That's a really good piece on our website. The other thing that I kept thinking about during the game, and you found you found yourself t- tell me that if this is kind of misguided, you found yourself almost wanting the Khaleesi one to be a red card as well, so it would be evened up, and. Um, but it, that that called to mind what JP Doyle said on our on our podcast earlier in the tournament, where he's saying if you, on the face of it, a lot of these things look very similar, but when you think about the decisions in isolation, they're like snowflakes because they're all so different and made up of so many different parts. And that's fair enough, sure. But it's but it's also sort of so difficult to get your head around if you're not totally embedded in it as a, as a as a fanatic. 
But even if you are totally embedded in it, I just think that rugby can't continue to be this sort of sport where only five people know what's going on. It's not yeah. good. It's not good enough for for world rugby to turn around and say, "Oh, these were all the correct decisions, and we believe so." Interior, we think so. Our ten, you know, our ten group of officials and their leader think that all the right decisions were made. So that's the end of it. You know, I'm not. I'm not sure that's good enough, and I'm not sure that's the way that rugby grows, frankly. Because I, I know that the the two incidents were different, and and they were, and there were obvious, you know. You know, what for starters, Khaleesi was bent at the hip, whereas Sam Kane wasn't. But even so, you know, it, it's still just clear, sort of reckless head contact, clumsy head contact, even unintentional head contact. And how one can be red and one can be yellow, it, you know, I just don't think that maybe it's the punishments. Maybe it's the it's the difference in the punishments, perhaps, where where rugby is slightly, you know, off kilter because one 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 of those tackles led to to the New Zealand captain spending the entire match on the sidelines and one of them led to the South Africa captain spending 10 minutes on the sidelines. So maybe a 20 minute yellow card is the answer in order to even up those those punishments. I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't have the answers, but I certainly think that the disparity in punishment certainly for those two incidents even if they were different is 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 not you know is 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 not portraying rugby in the best light at the minute. So South Africa are back to back World Cup champions after we had New Zealand who are back to back World Cup champions. Uh, the, the one thing I kept thinking about as I left the office on Saturday night was actually how um, this had been a bit of an embarrassment been a bit of an embarrassment for the Northern Hemisphere because we'd sort of had this situation where, you know, there was so much hope and expectation around France and Ireland and it's two coin flip games, but actually New Zealand and South Africa still, still run the game and, and at the moment it's the Springboks who are on top. Charlie, I, I'm a bit sad that Jack Nienov is going to Leinster because I sort of want to see if Razzie and Jack can run it back for a third time and win the third World Cup in a row. I mean, four, four years is a long time and you never know who's who's to say that he won't come back after a couple of years. But where do, where do you think this team kind of sits? And, and do you think, you know, we, in four years' time, are we going to be chatting about South Africa being world champions again? I'd, I'd be very interested to see how, how Ninaba works out at, at Leinster and whether he... Whether he does come back, as you say, four years is a hell of a long time. Um, and those two seem to gravi- gravitate towards each other, don't they? It's... I, I I got asked about whether that where they sort of stood as a as a sort of as a side and greatest greatest ever debate. I think that you can separate greatest ever World Cup side and greatest ever side sort of um, more generally, and I think they'd have much more of a chance of of being in the former. Um, and I think the, your criteria there are how close those all of those knockout games are and how they've managed to navigate them. How this last tournament was on the face of it, really open with the, the top four so far ahead of each other. And for them to have beaten, I know they lost to Ireland, I know they lost to Ireland in the um, in the group stage, but to to beat um, to beat France and then beat New Zealand, um, I think is just is such a such a huge, um, huge achievement, hugely impressive. Can they go can they go for a third? They they're gonna have to remodel a lot of their squad, I think. Um, a lot of them are on the aging side. However, they've also shown a willingness to 
pick guys at, at the sort of in their mid and even late thirties. They have a lot of players playing in Japan, which we sort of know is less kind of abrasive or has, has seemed to be less abrasive and, and less arduous for players and, and has the potential to prolong those careers. What was really interesting was that they were, I wouldn't say they were bullish in much of the press that they did and much of the messaging that they were putting out. But one thing that they were from the first time I heard Ninaba mention it, and he might have mentioned it before, but was after the the Qatar Cup at Twickenham uh, when they pumped, pumped New Zealand. He said, look, this, this result isn't going to matter because the World Cup and us getting to four and becoming the first side to get to four, as well as retaining it and becoming the second side to do that, that's what really matters to us. They had this higher purpose. Um, so becoming the first side to do it three times, you imagine if you fast forward, that will be a really, really big drive. Can I be a bit contrarian and butt in? Can I offer the point that I think the fact that they only won their knockout matches by one point it actually fights against them in the argument for the greatest World Cup team either ever because um, New Zealand 2015 just demolished everybody at a canter and retained their back-to-back titles from 2011 to 2015 and absolutely obliterated everybody. Um, So I don't think that South Africa are quite hit that level yet, but I must admit they are, they are pretty, pretty close. And for them to, for them to beat France and New Zealand, uh, well, I mean, I suppose they did lose to Ireland, but for them to beat France and New Zealand in the knockouts and uh, an almighty English effort really, really was impressive. And, and they were worthy winners in the end, but I don't think they're quite up there with the, with the 2015 All Blacks just yet. The, the only thing I'd say to that, Charles, is that it, it's, a fa- it's a fair point, but they've also, the kind of gauntlet they had to run, I think is a bit harder than teams have, have had to do in the past. I sort of went through the the past World Cup champions road to success for a piece on, on Sunday, and, and there was always kind of, tended to be like a blowout somewhere along the way in the quarterfinals or semi-final or like a, at least like a 10, 12-point win. And also in South Africa, we're facing, they've had to face the other top five teams in the top six aside from themselves in this tournament and they've lost, what, one of those to Ireland. So they've kind of, they've faced, they really have faced the best in the world. There's been no gimmies. I wonder if that kind of strengthens their argument more I, I don't necessarily think this will sound like I'm really splitting hairs I don't think they're necessarily the best collection of players to win a World Cup I think the 2015 All Blacks are probably better same with England in in 2003 maybe would be a strong case and and also the 1999 Wallabies come to think of it but I but I in terms of the best team in terms of the best kind of a group of players playing for each other and getting the best out of each other. I, I think that's what makes the argument better. I think Johnny, you know, I've even said this, Charlie, you, you might remember the quote better. He even said that like, we might not necessarily have like the best players in each position, but we have the right players. I think he said, we sort of have the right players for what we want to achieve as a team. And, and I think that's kind of what shone through for me in terms of, in terms of where this team might rank. I, th- I think, I think that plays into what a job Erasmus and Ninaba have done as a, as a coaching duo and, and not to, and I'm sure that the, the other guys around them, Felix Jones and and those guys have done a huge job as well, but it's how resourceful they are. So how they, you know, the 7-1 split is a great example of a side, a side sort of dragging a game towards how they want to play it. 
and I think that's and I think that's hugely admirable as well. I agree. I agree with. I think both of you have made the point that 2015 All Black side special, probably more rounded, probably had bet more star power as far as individual players. Um, well, have remarkable star player in there. They had a, had a had a chunk of sort of all time greats, iconic players within that. Um, but I just think in World Cups, you are they are all, they are just this such a weird isolated e- ecosystem where for two months it feels like anything can happen. And I think navigating that, and I agree with Ben that the, the difficulty of South Africa's run. Um, in in contrast to the the difficulty of their run in 2019, actually in 2023 they had a much more difficult route, um, and to to navigate that just just speaks volumes for their adapted apt- adaptability, their resourcefulness, and actually the sort of innovative tweaks that they've they've um, they've made along the way. Charles, let's chat about the cards a bit more because we sort of touched on it a bit earlier. So so with the cane. The game went on Jesse Creel. I, I'll admit, when I, when I first watched the replay of it, I thought that Creel's kind of change in direction might act as mitigation, but they seemed to come to the conclusion that Creel had changed direction early enough that Kane had time to adjust his body height. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, maybe it looks like that in the slow-mo, but I thought it, it played in real time. That was, you know, it was kind of tight. But nevertheless, Kane is so upright. It's clear head yeah. contact. It's not a lot of mitigation. Like I, I don't think I, don't, I can't really see. I can't see a way around that being a, a red. Really, can you? No, no, not at all. It was Stonewall. I think <clears throat> it was Stonewall, and I think as soon as he, I think he might have known as well. He didn't look like a happy man sat on sat on, sat on that seat plastic the plastic seat chair of death on the sidelines, um, and. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, he was too high. He was too high. A change of direction doesn't, you know, it doesn't, it does nothing to mitigate against the fact that a player is too high. If you're too high, then a change of direction really doesn't actually mean anything because it's only a change of body height from the attacker that's going to mean that's going to mean something. Um, and he was too high, and he he paid the consequences for it. It's the only tackle he's got wrong in the, in the entire tournament, and I'm, I'm guessing he'll be playing that through, despite his fabulous performances in the. In the in the knockouts, and he was very good at the start of that final as well. And his his you know his 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 un, unbelievable game against Ireland. I'm sure that's the tackle he'll be playing through in his mind for for years and years. I was just thinking, what a mad World Cup he's had. Yeah, because he basically went from being kind of written off as yeah. was he even going to start ahead of Dalton Papali'i, and then it was you no, know, he's back in for the quarters, and he plays arguably the game of his of his All Blacks career. With that performance against Ireland, he was very good in the semi-final, and, and and then this happens. I mean, yeah, he's really he's really been through the ringer. Um, well, captain um, hindsight, maybe you sh- maybe maybe Dalton Papali should have started. Yeah, maybe. Although although <laughs> you, you, that then gave us the Dalton Papali moment at the end with Faf's tap tackle. Oh yeah, we'll, the tap we'll tackle. Chat about a bit later. Um, Charlie, what I mean, it's it's pretty horrible, isn't it? What was Kane like afterwards? I thought incredibly impressive, but genuinely in- incredible um, ability to to front up and actually talk about it. And his voice was sort of quivering with the emotion of it, which was totally understandable. And he and he, I've forgotten the line now, but it's something like something like I'm going to have to live with this forever. Um, he refused to sort of. He yeah, he it was quite chilling actually. He he sort of. Um, 
refused to sort of, he said, look, we've been at this tournament for two months and the, the atmosphere of the tournament was always felt that that was going to be a red, um, just, just, you just felt, you felt brutal for him. Um, because yeah, I, I, I just, I just think it's one of those in a final, do you take more heed of that mitigation? I thought there was and live, and this is the thing, the live, it was, he, he hit Creel. They both went down at that ruck. Khaleesi joins the ruck and he taps his head towards uh, Wayne Barnes. And you know, then if, even if there's, you know, these players are human, we could talk about all this rubbish about values as much as we want, but they're going to, it's their prerogative to sort of highlight these things. If they think it's going to, um, going to get an advantage and, and you almost always get that feeling, don't you? That ominous feeling of, yeah, that's that's going to be close, and we know enough. We've seen it enough now. It's just up to uh, yeah. It just it just goes to chance straight away. And Kane knew, and he's that's what his sort of answer reflected was that I gave, I put myself in that position, you know, so I can't have any complaints. But I thought it was remarkable that he was that measured about it. He'd obviously had quite a while to think about his answer because he'd been <laughs> off uh, off since the day in a minute. But no, he did. He he was really really impressed with. The Springboks were at that appealing all game, though. I'm surprised that Wayne Barnes didn't nip it in the bud a little bit earlier. There were there were nu- numerous times where I think it was Damien Valemsa was caught a little bit high as he was falling to the ground, and he gave it the the theatrics, and 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 Wayne Barnes sort of said, "No, you were falling," but I thought he might go over and actually have a sort of an official word with him and just say, "Look, this needs to stop now because." It's getting a little bit much, and I, and I think in comparison, and I, you never saw it at all from the All Blacks, and I don't know if that's just another example of South Africa sort of being a little bit more wily and, and streetwise and playing the officials slightly better and just pushing the absolute limit of what is what is possible with the officials on a rugby field. What did you think of the Shannon Frizzell one? I uh, thought it was clumsy more than more than deliberate. Uh, Especially when we had, time. I felt like we had about twenty replays of it, didn't we? But um, yeah, it felt more, it, it felt more kind of accidental than, than deliberately cynical trying to target his leg. Maybe I'm being overly sympathetic there, but it was quite early, wasn't it? And yeah. So I, I thought, I thought that I was concerned that that might be a red because the, the referees had been told that that anything like that, you know, falling onto the lower limb at a rook was a, was a red card. I remember an incident, Gloucester, Gloucester La Rochelle in the Champions Cup last year, uh, Georges-Henri Colombe, the, the huge breeze block prop at La Rochelle, was yellow carded um, for uh, for exactly the same thing. Admittedly, he's a, he's a much bigger bloke than Shannon Frizzell. Um, and afterwards, the Gloucester, the Gloucester coaching staff were like, well, we've been told... Um, that that was a sort of red card offence, and so we're a bit confused as to why it wasn't. He then he then copped a ban. George Henry Com. I know it's not the same as that. Shannon Frizzell didn't aim at the lower legs. He sort of slips off and falls on, and it is accidental and it is clumsy. Um, but the end result's the same, isn't it? I mean, I, I don't know. I thought we were taking intent out of this uh, out of this sort of stuff. One thing that I am surprised that they didn't check, um, especially with how sort of meticulous Tom Foley is as TMO, is that Elizabeth uh, Forum. That it's about yeah. forearm in the first half. I mean, I, it's such a shame that we're sitting here again doing all this and just analysing little instants. But that's that's the game, brother. Um, and um, and 
you know, it, it, I, I really, I really thought that they would check that live. It looked dodgy on the replays. It looked quite dodgy as well, and I was surprised that they didn't check. Um, that that I mean, it looked like easily a penalty, maybe a yellow card, and also, it's you know, I thought Andre Pollard might have to go off for blood as well, but they managed to they managed to keep him on somehow. I'm not sure how they managed that, despite the fact they didn't have a any fly half on the bench. Just some um, just some quick fire notes to, to wrap up this this section before we um, before we chat about England Argentina. I think you mentioned Pollard there didn't miss a kick at all. I mean, I mean, absolutely incredible. He didn't miss a kick in Saka won three knockout games by a single point. Just pivotal. Um, I, I had to look up Dion Ferri's last start at Hooker just out of interest. It was 2018 for Leon, so he'd, he'd gone yeah. a good five years between. Kind of doing, you know, actually being okay. I mean, there was there seemed to be a bit of confusion because he was listed as a back row, and people didn't realise that you know he had actually spent a lot of time playing hooker in his career. Whether he could do it, but he certainly was, you know, rusty and hadn't done it for a while outside of starting against Romania. I want to say in the group stages. So I thought that was sensational. Um, Just to jump in on Dion Fury and the and the mix zone, chatting to about twenty journalists in French. In pretty good French at the cool. um, at the end of it, which was seriously cool. Beer in hand, um, yeah, boss. And actually, and really quickly on Nina, but Ninaba on him, they they lost. Charles, you haven't you haven't spoken yet about New Zealand's line out. Awesome. No, and they oh, really yeah, no. On both sides of the ball, I thought I was on player ratings. Gave Brody Retallick nine. I thought he was phenomenal in that area. So, but South Africa lost four lineouts, and um, Ninaba said afterwards. I don't know how many lineouts we lost, but I reckon Dion Fury made about 15, 20 tackles and he made up for that. Um, yeah, and what a man, Dion Fury. All Blacks lineout, or inspiring the entire tournament. You know, absolute props to, to the mastermind behind it. One of the best I've ever seen. Immaculate. There was another game on Friday night, which didn't mean as much, but let's chat about a famous bronze final victory for England. Charlie, England are the third best team at this Rugby World Cup. It's a fact, isn't it? Just, you know, better than France, better than Ireland. Um, no, look, listen, that, it, it was an interesting game in terms of the first half wasn't uh, wasn't the best. Second half got a bit lively and actually, you know, quite enjoyable at the end. What, what was it like being there? What's it like being at a third place playoff? Must be. I, I think I did it. For South Africa, Argentina in 2015. Actually, I did because I had to look up if I actually attended it, and I found a match ball that I did for the for another newspaper. <laughs> um, and so that was reassuring to know that I was actually there. Um, what was the mood like in in the Stade de France on Friday night? Um, it was actually quite lively because there were a lot of French people in, and they were they were booing the heck out of Owen Farrell and and England. So. <laughs> It was actually quite. It was. We we said before, didn't we? we said last week that <clears throat> I actually felt that it was. I mean, it's a dud game, and um, to borrow Phil Neville's term, a bit of a nonsense. But I think it was really important for England to consolidate what they'd done against South Africa just by winning in a, in whatever way possible, and they they did that just, and they did that with a little bit of a nod to the future as well with Theo Dan um, Theo Dan seizing redemption from um, from the jaws of a pretty dodgy missed tackle on Santiago Carreras. Yeah. Um, that was yeah. quite funny. Um, he was also probably pretty lucky not to, to get away with whacking. I think it was Juan Cruz Malia over the, over the line. Um, 
But no, they they were holding on and they were a bit fortunate. And the squad that was picked, I'm not sure whether injuries played a part, but they sort of ended up with a really imbalanced back line with Farrell at 12, Ford at 10, Marcus Smith still on the pitch, marching at Marchant at 14, Lawrence at uh, 13 and Stewart on one wing. So it was kind of, yeah, that I'm not sure they'll want to field that again. Um, but it was... <laughs> It was quite. It was quite. Um, it was. It was impressive that they held on and they were dogged. Dogged to the end. Um, talking about forearms, Farrell caught one in the in the face from Bruni. Mm. Um, also quite funny that Farrell, um, with the match winning penalty, sneaked ahead of Thomas Ramos to be the Golden Boot winner for the tournament. That's just um, just quite funny. It, after 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 having missed the first two games as well. Um, but no, I think yeah, they've they've snuck onto the podium. I think they'll be pleased with that. Um, and pleased with um, the, the the kind of fight they showed again. Just one more note: um, Steve Borthwick said something quite interesting about finals finals experience being being important in World Cups, and how he thought that um, the experiences of two thousand and nineteen had helped them in 20, 2023. Um, I think I think that's a valid point, and he said that actually getting through that was was pretty important looking for the future because in 2027 he wants England to be um challenging for the gold medal rather than the blonde bronze one yeah I'd, I'd have paid um good money to see an Owen Farrell golden boot ceremony on the pitch just to see what kind of I think the reaction has been a bit ridiculous that he's, he's been getting in the last the last couple of weeks I mean there's, there's no need to have a whole stadium a whole stadium on his back it's, it's gone a bit far um Charles, I'm kind of I'm kind of fascinated by England and mm. and what we're gonna and and <laughs> I mean I appreciate the World Cup trophy has been lifted about ten seconds ago, but but thinking ahead to to the Six Nations, which always seems to come around scary quick after a World Cup. Like I'm I'm kind of yeah I'm, I'm wondering I'm I'm very intrigued by a lot of selection areas and a lot of tactical areas and the addition of Felix Jones. How, how are you How are you feeling about England? Uh, optimistic, um, quietly optimistic. I'd say I'm not, not not overboard. I mean, I don't think you can read too much into into Friday night's game. Really, I thought England were excellent for the first ten minutes, and then maybe just the almost staleness of the occasion might have just seeped into them, and they just got a little bit flat, a little bit ragged, and a little bit disorganised. But and yet they still won. So you know the, that's the positive to say against an Argentina team who. Okay, have not fired on all cylinders this tournament, but they've got some world class players in there who can really hurt you and who could have who could have won that game really. Um, so I think winning was impressive in the end. Um, in terms of the Six Nations, well, we're going to hear from from England scrum half Jack Van Portfleet in a minute. He was saying that you know there are parallels at England to what Steve Borthwick did at Leicester when he went in there. He built the foundations in the first season, which is what sort of. He's done with England here. Admittedly, those foundations were being built towards rugby showpiece, which is a little bit unfortunate in its timing for him. Um, but but now is where the layers start to come on. And in that second season with Leicester, um, you know, they won the Premiership. And Van Portfleet was basically saying that, you know, this is where the attack will start to flourish, where there'll be depth, where there'll be growth in the attack. We'll see added layers to England's game. Um, and it's about finding the balance. They're not going to lose the ethos of what made that South Africa 
performance so brilliant, you know, the physicality and, to be honest, the kicking and the kick chase. They're not going to lose that, but maybe they might be able to just have a few more strings to their bow to finish off some of those half chances that they had against the Springboks. And I think that is now the four-year goal. Do they have the players to do that? Now, that's a that's a separate debate. Um, I certainly think I certainly think they have some. I think the the front row uh, in terms of depth is a, is an area of weakness that has been identified by the RFU and is being worked on. Uh, I think elsewhere they are strong. They have at least one or two class players in every position that might just need a little bit of experience, a little bit of time. Um, but I think the future, in terms of this next four-year cycle, with Steve Borthwick and how assiduous he is in his coaching role, it will be bright for England. We'll certainly have none of the fun and games, none of the antics of his predecessor, at least. Charles, don't reveal any more about your interview, which happened poorly, because we're going to hear it right now. You had a chat with England in Leicester Scrum half earlier this week. Let's hear what he had to say. First things first, Jack. Um, how are you? How's the recovery from injury going? And um, when should, will we be seeing you back on a rugby field? Um, no, I'm good, thank you. Yeah, I'm good. Uh, it's been um, yeah, funny few months. Bit bit different, not what not what you uh, intended. But um, no, it's been good. It's been uh, good to come back to Tigers, um, crack on with my rehab and things here. Um, and just slowly progressing that week on week and um, had some good bits sort of this week and today on testing, progressing on track. So hoping to be back uh, in the new year sometime. Um, uh, yeah, sort of early into next year, hopefully I'll be back playing and, and getting a few, um, yeah, back for Tigers as in, in that sort of time period. And what does that rehab entail? Because is it quite tricky with, with the nature of the injury that you've um, got? Yeah, it, the, I mean, it was... It was due to be about four months, the injury, um, with the ligament damage I did, uh, just ripping them off the bone and things. But the um, issue came was when I ripped all the ligaments off the bone, then the um, I sort of broke off a load of cartilage and a load of the um, load of the sort of bits of bits of bone as well. So uh, that's caused the sort of complication bit as well. And just with the new cartilage I've had put in. I can't really impact that for a while. So, um, yeah, it was due to be six months. I'm hoping to make that a little less. But, um, yeah, that's sort of where we are at the moment. And what was it What was it like? How's it, Just talk us through the sort of past few months uh, on an emotional level in yeah. terms of when the injury happened in that, in that Wales warm-up match um, and to now and watching England get to the semi-final or finishing third, securing that bronze medal. Yeah. How has it, has it been a bit of a whirlwind for you? Watching the games for England has been hard, yeah, really hard. Um, it's weird, like you almost thought when I thought before the tournament happened, watching the watching the tournament, you think like um, if they didn't do well, it would almost feel better for you. But then watching them lose the semi final and going so well before that. And, and building week on week and with a few dips and formances but the way they kept building week on week and things and then to the heartbreak at the the by one point South Africa was just I found it tough like to process I felt so bad for all the boys like um, all the 
all the lads that you've worked so hard with over the summer, you just feel that, yeah, felt so bad for them and I felt their pain almost. So, um, yeah, it definitely wasn't easier not seeing them. Was it harder or easier for you with the fact that your replacement in the squad came in and basically grabbed the shirt? Does that make you feel almost more... Um, more concerned or does that give you extra motivation for for sort of what's to come in the future I mean mm. obviously he, he came in and Alex Mitchell was was excellent mm. um, you know is does did that did you sort of think oh that's sod's law or did you think oh, okay well then this is giving me something to work towards for when I'm back no I think um, I think as soon as I I knew I couldn't play the World Cup I was just devastated not to be going to the World Cup. I wasn't angry that someone else is taking my sh- like is playing instead of me. I wasn't angry that um, I wasn't annoyed that or like frustrated that Mitch came in. I was happy for Mitch. I get on really well with Mitch. He's a great lad, and um, I was I was pleased to see him do well because I want to see the team succeed. And with him starting at nine, you want to you, you want to see him go well and and do well for the team. I think for me now, it's given me a great challenge to come back and push and. And try and um, try and compete back for that nine shirt, and um, but um, and that's sort of big picture, yeah. and and I've been really trying to have the big picture in my mind and trying to push as hard as I can to get back. My target is to try and get back and, and playing for the Six Nations and try and get a few games under my belt to before the Six Nations to to sort of prove myself to get back in that squad. But um, that's my that's my long term goal, and that's that's always in the back of my mind. But I've just got to be ticking it off week on week or like day by day here. You know, the small little wins I can take and, and keep positive that way because I think I think that was the hard bit at the start. I was like thinking so long ahead when I just sat at home not doing anything. You're looking so far ahead that then you almost get lost in it and then you start to feel like down and, and, and bad about it. But you just take it day by day and week by week. You, you're ticking off all the good things and you're staying a lot more positive. And, and it, has that been the sort of messaging that's come from the England coaches and not just them Dan McKellar here as well has that been what all what they've sort of been saying to you with regards yeah, to the yeah. so, so um, after the injury Steve was and, and the, Steve was really good he sort of uh, really felt for me and, and, and things and then he, he was really good at um, setting me targets and things uh, early doors about where he wants me to um, see if I can target getting back for for the Six Nations in those areas and 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 competing um, around then and back playing around then um, and he sort of challenged like um, and and just been really sportive ever since he's been um, even though he's had so much on his plate with the World Cup and things he's been constantly messaging me and and keeping in touch and so have all the Indian coaches um, which has been which has been brilliant and Dan's been uh, awesome here as well I think he. Um, Understood. I think at the start, I said that I just wanted to just crack on with my own stuff just to begin with and, and get comfortable with the injury and, and pushing forward in that. And then when I'm ready, I'm, I'm happy to help out with the team stuff and, and help the team and, and like reviewing games and, and pushing forward. And, and he was brilliant at accommodating that. And um, yeah, no, they've all been fantastic here. The whole rehab and SNC have been brilliant and, and the coaching stuff have been, have been class to, to help me out. And um, been really good at accommodating me with being around the boys still and keeping keeping positive. And and given your position in camp um, before the tournament started, mm-hmm. you've touched on it already. How heartbreaking that semi final loss was to South Africa. Yeah. How would you rate sort of not necessarily a score out of ten, but how would you rate England's tournament 
um, as a whole? Do you think that they exceeded expectations or do you think the bronze bronze medal was about right in terms of, obviously Steve only had the reins for, well, less than a year and to get them to the bronze medal is, is a pretty decent achievement, really. Uh, and obviously you had the nadir of that loss to Fiji beforehand. How do you, how do you sort of, you know, rate it? I think it's a hard question. I think, um, well, I think the sh- what showed in the in the um, in the South Africa game, especially, and um, is the quality within that squad, and and um, no matter whether it's um, and Steve touched on it at the end of the game that the amount of boys we had under the age of twenty five, I think it was, compared to South Africa and things, and and in the squad compared to them. Um, and I think the potential and the, the capability of that squad it was shown in that game. And, and um, I think the through the whole of summer, we had such a belief in, in, in a belief that even though, and I was only there for the first two one-week games, and even then they weren't what we wanted them to be and as good as we wanted them to be. But there was always that belief is we, we were all pulling in the right direction and we were we were pushing and and, and getting better. And I think... Um, the performances and and the the sort of team ethos that Steve's building um, at the club at, at sorry not the club at, the, at, at England has been is brilliant. I think it's only building. Um, I think I sort of see sort of small comparisons with with how Steve when he first came in at Leicester. I think people can say and I don't know in, and in football they talk about the dead cat bounce like when a new manager comes in you can you can fly off the mark but and and I obviously don't know football but from my experiences so far in rugby it takes time for a coach to come in and implement how they want to play and I think it's it's harder to do it at international level than it is at, at club level in some ways um, and I think Steve when he first came to Leicester, he built the foundation so brilliantly um, in our first season here, that, and and then um, and then we came back to the second season, and that's when we really took off and really and and really threw because we had the foundations built so brilliantly in the in the first year, and then we just added the layers and the bits to it um, that that we were able to do so well that next year and win the Prem. And I think that's something Steve's been doing brilliantly England is building those foundations and, and things and obviously they'd have wanted to to go and win the World Cup and do that and and disappointed that we couldn't do that because there was there was um, we had the sort of chances to do it but I think the way that we're building the foundations and the way that um, Steve and the coaching staff are uh, pushing that forward and then to be able to and 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 keep adding on the layers to it I think that um, yeah, it's in. We're in a good spot, and I think that um, okay, third place was was decent. Probably slightly disappointing in the end with with the opportunity we got ourselves to in the semi final. I think that we're going. I think England is and is going in the right direction. I think it's and, exciting. And what should we expect, therefore, with what you've just touched on with regard to Steve's time here at Leicester? What should we expect now? from a, a Steve Borthwick four-year World Cup cycle. He's got the reins now. Obviously, he had a, he had, it was almost a sort of short, quite short-termism for this World Cup because he mm-hmm. only had a year to sort it out. He did not have the, the sort of 
um, the time and opportunity that other nations had had. So what now should we expect? Obviously, you don't know for certain, yeah, yeah, but what, yeah. what, would, what would your expectations be of a, of a four-year World Cup cycle? Well, I've never, I've, I've, I've never been in a in a World Cup cycle, or or and don't know how, sort of quite how that works. I was in the, it was probably around a year and a half before, or uh, nearly two years uh, before this World Cup. So. Uh, no, probably a year and a half. Yeah, so in it for a year and a half. So I don't know quite how the the cycles go. All I'd say is from from my experience in 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 Leicester and and things like that. The the hardest thing to to develop and and get cohesion on is the attack. Um, it's always the hardest thing to evolve in a team, and it takes the longest. And I think that we got our basics built brilliantly with the defence, kicking game, set piece, and stuff. That. Um, and and there was so much, or there was really good signs of of attack um, uh, at, at points in the World Cup. That that I think that that's probably the the biggest area that um, we'll see growth. And and um, I know with Wiggy uh, leading it, he's a brilliant attack coach, and he's already made some great um, and he's already done some brilliant things so far at, at building that attack and and taking that forward. So. I think that that's probably where we'll see the most growth and and things like that on top of the different foundations to to the basics. But um, yeah, attack's always the hardest thing to to um, to build and to to grow over time. And I think that's probably the area where we've got such an exciting amount of growth in us. Well, that leads nicely onto my next question. Actually, um, it, obviously, we saw a quite sort of short-term, pragmatic, almost conservative game plan from England in this World Cup for obvious reasons and that they hadn't had the time to to instil that attacking game plan. And, it, and it, to be honest, it almost worked. You know, they got to within a point of the, of the eventual world champions and they were excellent in that semi-final. But do you think we will now see perhaps a little bit more ambition maybe or or enterprising rugby from England or do you think it was still because because Steve here in his second season Leicester attacked brilliantly here in his second season while still kicking the ball quite a lot and do you think that's the balance that England are going to look look towards well I don't first of all I don't think that um that England probably that they played I don't know I can't quite remember how you described it now but I think that Steve is brilliant at, at creating game plans for the team, for the opposition he's playing. And um, and you'll see that week on week. And I think that the the game plan, um, and and we might not get it right, and they sometimes change within games, but Steve sets out so brilliantly with the plan um, on how to 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 beat an opposition and, and the evidence behind it. So um, I think it was perfect for the South Africa game. And and we exposed so much of and created so much opportunity for ourselves. And I just think that I don't think we'll have like you can't in test matches go away from the foundations and the basis of the game because I mean France um, France everyone talks about them playing an incredible expansive game and stuff, but they play they kick just as much as anyone in world rugby. They kick and it's all about having that balance and 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 it's about when you kick and. And how you kick it at those times. I think what we will see. I think what was will be really exciting is that, and 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 what we'll, we'll probably see changing is that that when we're creating these opportunities through our foundations, 
that will then make then take those chances. Yeah. And I think um, I think that's probably the area that um, we'll see the the sort of or we have the the exciting part of the thing. It won't be like it's not going to turn around and play and and be crazy and be like being stupid with the ball and things. You're always going to be smart with it and and but it's going to be able to. Um, Maybe it is bravery. Maybe I don't know um, not it, what it is that because um, I've obviously not been in camp for for a while. But hopefully, and and well, where I see it is that um, we'll take the opportunities because the the opportunities we had in in that South Africa game to to score points were there. We just couldn't quite quite take them. Um, so I think that's probably the area of growth that um, we'll to make the most of those opportunities through our attacking game. I'm going to put you on the spot now and probably make you squirm a little bit. But who impressed you? Who impressed you the most, players-wise, for England? Who 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 do you think were the sort of contenders for Player of the Tournament? I thought Ben Earl had a brilliant tournament. Um, the way he moved moved around the uh, well, moved between seven and eight, but the the job he did um, in every game, the way he fought, the way he he um, sort of was everywhere, to be honest, and 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 how he was physically and. And then I just thought, yeah, Rigsy um, Beno was brilliant, and um, yeah, he'd probably be my player of the tournament. Two of the Premiership's three World Cup winners, Jasper Visa and Andre yeah. Pollard of South Africa, are coming back here. How much yeah. of a boost is that in terms of what they're now going to be bringing in terms of their big match experience, which they already had anyway, mm-hmm. of course, but in terms of what they've achieved over the past month, and also are you expecting a little bit of smugness from them <laughs> around the place? No, I don't think so. They're. they're <laughs> um, they're terrific blokes. They're they're great people, and um, I think that they'll come back. And I think once they were in the final and playing against New Zealand, all the boys at Tigers wanted to see Andre and Jasper go win the World Cup and, and bring it, um, bring a World Cup medal back to Leicester. Because um, and we're extremely happy for them and and and, and proud of what they've done. I think. Um, They've both had brilliant tournaments, and Andre, the way he's come back from his injury and, and stepped in so so seamlessly, has been has been unreal. And yeah, well, we're really excited to have him back, and um, I think they'll add so much in terms of well, Jasper, you know what, you know what he brings, and you know the quality he has with his carrying and his physicality, and and Andre with with his control and his experience could be and and, and will be brilliant for us and and helping us push forward. Thanks for your time, Jack. Thank you very much. Well, mere hours after Sia Khaleesi lifted the World Cup trophy, we had uh, news of a resignation filtering through from Australia, which is that Eddie Jones has stepped down as the Wallabies head coach. It's been a pretty disastrous rugby World Cup campaign, wins over Georgia, wins over Portugal, losses to Fiji and Wales and knocked out in the group stages. He he was brought back um, with a vision for a a big kind of five-year plan, given that Australia hosts the British and Irish Lions in 2025, which... um, yeah, right now it looks like it's going to be a colossal mismatch. And then because Australia are hosting the World Cup in 2027 as well, so the brief was um, to get the Wallabies ready for 2027 for this next cycle. It hasn't worked out. Eddie's gone. He, he went out um, with a fantastic quote to the Sydney Morning Herald on Sunday. Sometimes you have to eat something for others to eat caviar further down the track, which I thought was was quite... Quite a lot-hearted way of trying to make the most out of a desperate situation. I mean, Charles, 
what happens now with Australian rugby? Are, are they are they in a better shape without him? Could you could you see what he was trying to achieve by by taking a young side to the World Cup, even if he maybe overdid the selection slightly? Yeah, yeah, I actually can, and, and you know what? When he selected that squad, it, it, it obviously jarred, and it was strange. It felt strange, but then his justification for it was that he he's building for he's building a squad for the Lions tour and for the World Cup in twenty twenty seven. So if you took him at face value then, then the squad makes sense. Now it just all seems to have been built on a sort of you know bed of lies because he's he's gone. Um, in disgrace, really, you have to say, because of all the all the stuff that's been all the stuff that's been reported in the press about about the Japan interviews. So you know, Eddie was taken at his face value. He's completely hoodwinked Rugby Australia. Really, he claims he's been hoodwinked by them. So there's a lot of hoodwinking going on. And how really Hamish McLennan? the um, Rugby Australia chief executive can still, in good faith, say that he is going to continue in his role after sacking Dave Rennie last autumn. And let's not forget, last autumn, without three of their best players, Dave Rennie's Australia uh, came within a point of France, came within a point of Ireland, all away from home, beat Wales and beat Scotland. Like that's that's not a bad autumn without your three best players. Um, then, then Dave Rennie was sacked. Uh, and all of his assistants were sacked, one of whom was Dan McKellar, now the Leicester head coach. Um, and and Eddie was brought in as this saviour. And, um, well, less than a year on, he's gone. And so I think Rugby Australia owed Dave Rennie a massive apology. I'm not sure he'll get it. I think, um, you know, Hamish McLennan, the chief executive, really needs to be sort of debating whether he's the right man to take Australian rugby forward and whether his position is now untenable because he's the guy who sacked Rennie, he's the guy who hired Eddie and ultimately the buck stops with him. I think Dave Rennie's now cashed in in Japan so with Kobe's Steelers so I feel, feel like he's actually ended up quite well getting out of this mess. Um, Dan McKellar's off back to Australia soon, isn't he, from Leicester, Charles? As far as we understand it, um, Dan McKellar is going nowhere. There have obviously been reports in the Australian press suggesting otherwise, but our intel is that he'll be going nowhere. It's It's been, this is a, a really nauseous comment, it, it's been a World Cup full of kind of fascinating um, press conferences from losing teams. Like I think about Johnny Saxton, Barely keeping it together after the court, the New Zealand court final. Charlie was talking about Sam Kane, Dupont lashing out at the world after France's exit, and and also just the excruciating press conference, which was after Wales Australia, where Eddie was having to kind of answer questions about why his side had been absolutely thrashed by Wales, but also try and explain uh, or like back down this this very concrete story, which we've heard from lots of sources that he he'd sort of spoken with Japan about becoming the Japan head coach. I mean, it's been a bit of an extraordinary mess, to be honest. There, there's clearly talent there, players like Angus Bell and Mark Nobukani-Tawasi and, and others. Like there's, there is there is something there potentially to build on, but that I'm fascinated to see who, who takes it forward. Could be Stephen Larkin, who's at the Brumbies. Could actually be... And, my, and I would love to actually see it be Andy Friend, who, who's currently unattached, 
Um, got a chance to catch up with him during the World Cup in Leon. I had a lovely six-year stint at Connaught where he's absolutely revered. He's currently back in Australia. That would be that would be very interesting. But yeah, I mean, for the Australians, trying to, trying to build optimism around the game when you're up against stiff competition domestically from other sports with huge landmark events coming up with the Lions and, and the Rugby World Cup, then the house needs to be put in order pretty sharpish and, and hopefully that's going to be the case. Um wanted to touch on the on the Rugby World Cup Awards late on Sunday night. Charlie, did you go? Were you there? No, I didn't. You needed a tux. Oh. And I didn't all have a tux. I barely had jeans. What, just no trousers? <laughs> yeah, that was no, uh, sure. Overrated. <laughs> uh, it's a bit of a shame. I, I think we were chatting about in terms of award winners, honestly, they're being named Player of the Year. I think we're fine with. I say that tentatively, waiting for one of you to butt in, but you both. No, I'm absolutely nodding. fine with that. In fact, in fact, controversially, I thought he should have got Man of the Match in the final. Well, well, listen. If Geordie Barrett's long range penalty sneaks inside the left post and doesn't go wide, then he does. Ardy might well have won it. Um, and if Harold Coach of the Year was. Interesting. Uh, yeah, that winning run. Um, but then who else? I was debating who else. I mean, it would have had to have been either, well, Jack, it would have to have been Jack Nienaber. And I'm guessing they decided the award winners before the night of the final. If the if that team's anything to go by, which we're obviously going to get onto, then I'm guessing they decided it before the night of the final. And who, who else would there have been other than other than Andy Fowler? Well, Fowl? I, I, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have minded... Simon Raoulou getting it for Fiji, and I definitely think Patrice Lajuskay should have been nominated for Portugal. Lajuskay should have got it, and actually probably should have got it, given what Portugal achieved. Given they, you know, first World Cup win, should have really had two against Georgia as well, just a miss kick away from two. I, I think certainly he should have been nominated, and actually would have been quite a refreshing choice if if he'd won it. So that's my that's my thought. Can I offer, again, a slightly controversial um, counterpoint that Fiji might have been, if you look back on Fiji's tournament, a bit of a disappointment? No, I was going to say, I think a nomination a nomination for Raul Louis was, was deserved, I think, for what they achieved. I, I don't necessarily know if he would have won it. It's such a shame he stepped down, because I kind of want to see where Fiji were going to go with him in control. Um, Charlie, any quibbles from you about coach, coach of the year? No, I, um, yeah, it's so difficult because they, yeah, they clearly had, had sorted all of those out before the final. Ninaba, I think, yeah, a toss of a coin for me. I think, I think it's, it's, we'll get a reminder of it very quickly during the Six Nations. I think Ireland have, Ireland have brought their game on brilliantly and yeah, we have to remember that they were a width of Geordie Barrett's shin away from um, winning that game and looking really strong, sort of going towards a, a semi-final against Argentina. So, and just just the what they were doing as well, just how multifaceted their game was, um, super impressive. So, and he's done some special things, Andy Farrell. Although, I mean, it's not even controversial to bring it up. Andy Farrell's record at now at World Cups now, either as an assistant or a headman, is isn't great it's 2015 with England 2019 with Ireland then 2023 with Ireland two two quarterfinal losses in a group stage exit um, 
So yeah, he'll be fired up for the next cycle wherever he is. I think he's he's contracted till twenty twenty five with Ireland, isn't he? Um, so he'll be yeah, he'll be pretty motivated to for the next cycle. Although, let's never talk about cycles again because it's <laughs> just, World Cups. World Cups are mad. World Cups are mad. Um, Andy Farrell did have my favourite quote of the tournament, um, which was that sport can be cruel sometimes. That's why we love it, which I thought was quite a poignant thing to say in the aftermath of that quarterfinal defeat. Actually, no, sorry, joint favourite quote. The other one being George Turner talking about how he was trying to, the Scotland hooker, chatting about how he was trying to cut into a baguette and then he realised it was his hand. And he said, <laughs> and he said, I thought the bread was a bit tough and then he needed five stitches after he, uh, he went through it. Um <laughs> let's get on to let's get on to some of your questions now just to wrap up this episode the final world cup episode it's all coming to an end okay then your final questions thank you ever so much for all of your contributions and comments and, and tweets can we still call them tweets i think so um throughout the uh throughout the rugby world cup they've been hugely appreciated and uh yeah been great hearing from you and Keep in touch with your thoughts on what's happened. Um, we've got a couple this week. First from Stephen Wall, who asked, would you back a law change that says a ball can be marked anywhere on the pitch with a free kick resulting from where the ball was kicked? So box kicks, crushable bombs, long-range kick tennis needs to be disincentivized. Charles, you're the uh, you're the part-time referee. Talk to me. Would you be would you be up for marks all over the field? Um I understand the logic behind it and the rationale behind it to disincentivize the kick tennis. Yeah, that makes sense. But then we're just getting a game that's more stop-start, aren't we? I don't know if that's if that's something that we want. Do we want more free kicks? Do we want more stoppages? I'm not sure. Admittedly, you know, you get a lot of kicks that are contestable and they're not caught cleanly. So how much how much of an issue this would be? I'm not sure. Um, certainly on the same theme, uh, Stephen. Uh, I would say that maybe scrum infringement should be a free kick. Um, that might that might speed things up. It might mean that teams stay more legal at scrum time because they're not scrummaging. We've heard South Africa say explicitly that they scrum for penalties, but then it, if it was just a free kick, they wouldn't be able to kick to touch and they wouldn't be able to kick the goal. You might see a, more quick taps from the base, a bit of a more sped-up game, and also it would eliminate one of the most unjust elements of rugby union which is basically at scrum time if you are inferior to the opposition you get penalised um, which is not necessarily what penalties are for but what about Oxen Che Oxen Che King well, yeah. I mean, he can, no he can still be excellent and he's excellent in other ways and he can still scrummage his heart out and he still will but he'll just get free kicks rather than penalties hmm and then, so and then South Africa, that. yeah, South Africa would choose another scrub. Just scrub. It's just eighty minutes of a scrub cycle, free kick scrub cycles, free kick scrub. Superb. That sounds terrifying. I don't know if I want to live in that world, um, but but it's an interesting point. Um, and then another question from Dan Charlie. You get to answer this one. Um, Rumours that Kevin Sinfield might be leaving the England coaching setup. Should Steve Borthwick be looking for a more experienced coach? their attack I mean I mean how's this how's the England coaching setup going to look firstly how's it going to look with um, Felix Jones coming in in terms of roles and and if Kim, if Kevin Sinfield went the, the defence you know did improve throughout the year kind of like we were always promised it would but then but then how how would that play out that would be more disruption at a time when England I guess are trying to settle 
Uh, as as well as we understand, Kevin, that no decisions have been made on on Kevin Sinfield yet. I believe um, we Felix Jones coming in. Um, I th- as I said, I think that's I think that's exciting for one, given what he's achieved with South Africa and how South Africa could sort of push the envelope a little bit. Maybe not during the World Cup in the bigger games, but th- over the course of the last eighteen months or so um, at Leicester. I think we can look. Funnily enough, we can look at Leicester as a sort of template to how this worked, given that all of them were there, all of them were there pretty much. Um, and it was sort of a felt like a structure whereby nobody had a uh, a real responsibility for or, or an overwhelming responsibility for any one area. I think they had their had their separate areas, maybe, but they were they fed into each other. And um, see, Borthwick's been on record as talking about how the game sort of is so fluid and, and different areas sort of um influence one another and are interchangeable so i think and that's the noises the noises that felix jones has been sort of making himself not just in the mix zone after the after the final but when he's done press previously is that that's what he anticipates um a more experienced coach for the attack i think that's a good idea too um that would mean um, stability in that area, and they haven't really since Scott Wisemantle at the last World Cup. The, the last again cycle, cycle, cycle. So apologies, but um, over the between twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty three, England just had no. It felt like they had no real direction there. They had Simon Amor in and out. Um, they had Martin Gleeson in and out, um, and that didn't really seem like it felt like progress was being built certainly under Gleason it felt like there was a definitive way they were trying to play um and that was with with for with Farrell sorry and Smith as 10 and 12 um but then that went and they've had to sort of sort of re re revamp it again um so yeah I think that's a good idea from Dan I'm as guilty as anyone of this but we sort of forget how cobbled together it was at the start of the year and now that there's actually time to kind of Fine tune the coaching staff and work out a long term vision in the next cycle. Sorry, Charlie. It'll be interesting to see how you know how that all plays out. Right, that's it for today. It's it for the World Cup. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Charles. And a big thank you to Jack Van Portfleet as well for speaking to us this week. Uh, and thank you for downloading the podcast and also everybody who's been watching us on YouTube as well over the last couple of months. We really appreciate all of your support. We're now taking a break from the podcast. It's going to be back in the new year, back from the Six Nations, but you'll still be able to keep up with what we're doing on the Telegraph website. There's loads of coverage looking back on the World Cup. And ahead to the Gallagher Premiership, which is, you know, we're all going to be getting back into this week as well. Thanks again to all of you who've listened to us, but from all three of us, goodbye for now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 